beginning in verse 14 and going through verse 17. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death and to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. I'm told that one of the most interesting buildings and apartments that can be toured in Washington, D.C. is the United States Department of the Treasury. Among the many activities that takes place in that department, of course, the most important one is the printing of U.S. currency and coinage. A person can take a tour. They can watch money actually coming off the press and coins being stamped. It is also, not surprisingly, one of the few tours in Washington, D.C. where you are not invited to take samples. So there is there's no use asking. One of the most interesting parts of the tour, I'm told, is the counterfeit money section. While the guide will tell you, while it looks like a five, a legitimate five or ten or twenty dollar bill, it's not really the real thing, and, and he'll tell you the differences in the real and the unreal. And he'll tell you how that by looking at the ink and by looking at the fiber in the paper, the quality of the paper and the imprint upon that on that bill, how you can distinguish the marks of real currency from that which is only counterfeit. Also in our day and time, there's a large market for antiques with beautiful grains of wood. And these are pieces of furniture that are sometimes 100 years old or even older. There's also a large market in this country for people who make fake antiques. They're not the real thing, they only look like antiques. In fact, someone has said that if you pull up to an antique store, and the sign out front says, genuine antiques made while you wait. <laughs> You'd better drive away. And yes, once again, the untrained eye may not know the difference between the real and the unreal. To the trained eye, the difference is, is, is quite obvious. It's the grain of the wood, whether the, you've got the presence of pegs instead of nails, and, and the craftsmanship, all, those are all things that are indicative of, of authenticity. You may remember also that Coca-Cola came out with an advertising campaign some years ago that had the tagline, Coke, it's the real thing. It seems that when we're dealing with money and furniture or even soft drinks, people are searching for the real thing, that which is not counterfeit. You know, we live in a world that's full of plastics, a world of phony people who are not what they claim to be. And out of that emptiness that comes from living in in predominantly a phony world, we search for the real thing in our lives. Money and furniture and soft drinks aren't the only things that are subject to imitation. In fact, I'm submitting for your consideration this morning that when you consider our world at large, it seems that that which is most imitated is Christianity. For more than 2,000 years, there have been churches and religious institutions and men who may call themselves preachers who have attempted in many different ways to replicate something that is only like Christianity. And so that's why when we listen to those messages or we turn on our televisions or our radios or watch them on the, on the Internet, we always have to use God's Word as the yardstick to measure those messages. 
because not every message comes from God. And we would be naive to fail to acknowledge that. But none has the fullness of or the completeness of, of true Christianity, and that's what the sincere heart is after. Religion seems to be especially subject to phony people who are not what they say they are, but as in everything, there's a way of telling real Christianity from that which is counterfeit. And that's what I want us to look at briefly this morning. You may recall that Paul was charged with being a counterfeit. Some said that he was a false teacher. Some said that he was a false apostle. And to counter that attack, he wrote the book of 2 Corinthians. And in that book, he includes three verses that began really to delineate the marks of what is real, authentic Christianity. And so, Alan has already read the verses. I hope you'll keep your Bible open to that page because we want to make some references to that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, and look at it with me for just a few minutes. These marks, by the way, are not limited to the people in the day and the age in which Paul was writing these, these words and writing this letter. They are as true for us today as they were then. I believe that you'll see that this is just as relevant as this morning's newspaper. And the marks that Paul says are true of real Christianity then are still true today. What are they? Number one is unshakable optimism. The context of 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 17, by the way, I'm kind of unusual for me, but I'm using the NIV this morning, and so that's the language. I like the wording of it. I've noticed in communication, words are so important, and so those are the words that we're going to be locking into this morning. There's a charge in that. There was really an accusation that had been lodged against the Apostle Paul, if you can believe it. Again, he was accused of being a false teacher. He claims to be an apostle. But there were a lot of people, some people at least, that were saying he was not the real deal. And so he writes the words in response to that accusation, watch this carefully, but thanks be to God. I don't know if you've ever been accused of doing something that you're not guilty of, but if you were, your first response probably was not, well, thanks be to God for the accusation. But that's how Paul responds. I'm suggesting that that's the first real clue of genuine Christianity. The first mark of real Christianity is unshakable optimism, and that's what Paul possessed. Paul had been charged, been accused of being unreal, a counterfeit apostle, as it were, and his reply is, thanks be to God. There's a spirit of thanksgiving, of gratitude, of, of optimism that distinguishes real Christianity from all the imposters. Genuine Christianity is a grateful life in the midst of an ungrateful world. It's a heart that expresses sincere thanks even in the face of adversity. It's a life of thanksgiving and gratitude when our spirits are in the valleys of life and not just when we happen to be on the mountain peaks and everything is going wonderfully. Everyone looks good. Everybody looks like the real thing when riding on a donkey that has been strewn with palm branches and people are shouting hallelujah as you pass by. The real issue in our Christian lives is, folks, what do we look like when we're in our gardens of Gethsemane? Or how do we look when we've been betrayed by a Judas kiss and we've been nailed to an old rugged cross? Everybody looks good when they just got a promotion or when the, the boss has validated their good work or they've gotten a pay raise. The issue, the real issue in our lives is, what do we look like when we've been told that our services are no longer required? And we've been told to clean out our cubicle, we leave the building for the last time holding a pink slip. Everybody looks good. They look like the real thing when they're bragging about their healthy family. The issue is, what do we do when we look down and we see a deformed body or an underdeveloped mind? 
Anybody in the world can look good when all is going well. I'm just saying that the mark of the real thing, of real Christianity, is an optimistic life of thanksgiving and gratitude, even when being accused of being a false prophet like Paul was, or when losing a job, or when giving birth to a deformed baby, or some other catastrophic similar experience to that. I'm, I'm talking about genuine thanksgiving that is felt in the heart. I'm not talking about a grin and bear it attitude that some people have called stoicism. And it's not the attitude of, I'm just going to kind of hang on until I can get my way through this experience. And I'm going to try to survive, but I know that I will never thrive. That's not what we're talking about either. N nor is genuine thanksgiving being able to say empty words like, hallelujah, I've got cancer. No, no, we all know that it's superficial to say such a thing right in the middle of adversity and pain and heartache and even in the middle of death. You see, the Bible teaches that in the, in the face of death, the real Christian weeps. At least that's what Paul said, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the latter part of verse 13. Now, we don't sorrow even as others who have no hope, but when we lose someone that we love, we weep. That's what real Christians do. In the middle of unemployment, it feels bad. And beyond that experience, though, it sees, it sees a God who is, is shaping us into the image of his own son. We see a purpose behind the suffering. We see a reason for these things having come upon us at this point in our life. You see, God uses that experience to cancel pride and to cancel, cancel materialism and to cancel egotism in order to make that person into the image of Jesus. And that kind of rejoicing, folks, I'm telling you, is rejoicing in the deepest sense. And it is a certain hallmark of the real thing, and that is real Christianity. There's a great example of that kind of rejoicing in Acts 16. I think we talked about it just a few weeks ago. And if you're familiar with that chapter, you know that Paul and Silas had been thrown in prison because they had been preaching the message of God there in the city of Philippi. And they could have reacted to that predicament in a number of ways. They could have blamed God for their dilemma and turned their back on him and said, no more preaching assignments for me. They could have blamed the church and gotten cynical Instead of blaming God or the church or anyone else, you remember how Paul and Silas responded. They were singing praises of him to God at midnight. They didn't sin for attorneys, and they sure didn't blame God for leaving them in prison when all they were guilty of was preaching his message. No, they believed that God was at work in their situation. They believed that God was at work in the city of Philippi. And despite their imprisonment, they were singing songs in the night. And you and I know that it wasn't the first and the last verses of Nobody Knows the Trouble I've Seen. Unshakable optimism means that you sit in the prisons of life and you can see a God beyond and behind the circumstances, mark number one, mark number two, is a spirit of victory. Notice verse 14 of our text, how Paul speaks of God, who, and now I'm quoting, who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. Sometimes when we're suffering, we lose sight of the victory. We feel more like a victim than we do a victor. And that's a part of the problem. Real, genuine Christianity has a spirit of victory about it. What does Paul mean by that, though, this triumphal procession in Christ business that he's describing? What kind of picture that does he have in mind? Well, first of all, we've got to really use our imaginations and we've got to draw in other information because nobody living today has ever seen what Paul is here describing. It's the image 
of a Julius or a Claudius or an Augustus who's been down in Egypt, who has spent two years in leading a military campaign fighting for the Romans. Word has come to the eternal city of Rome that Claudius will be back tomorrow. And so wall-to-wall people are lining the streets of Rome and suddenly on the horizon come the legions and the steady cadence of the drum beats and the Roman legions return from battle with their prisoners and with their plunder. And slowly they come into sight and leading them as their commander-in-chief of that campaign. And I can guarantee you the people are celebrating. They are victorious. And behind the prisoners of war as well as those who demonstrated power and military might while fighting courageously on the field of battle. That's the image that Paul is describing in verse 14. And he says, you know what? That's what it's like to be a Christian. Even if you spent the last few days fighting a bloody war, you still come home victorious. Every one of us will. And every one of our good people who have passed from this life just in the last week and have gone on to glory, folks, they are now leading the victory parade. And we must never, ever forget that. We sometimes think of death only in terms of sorrow and grief, but but God says this is really celebration time because this is what they've been working for their entire life. No wonder Paul said, I finished the course. I have kept the faith. And now I know there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me in that day. Watch this, church. And not to me only, but to all them also that love is appearing. What a wonderful victory that'll be. So Paul says that the second mark of of genuine, non-counterfeit Christianity is a spirit of victory. Now, elsewhere in the Bible, Even God is described as the commander-in-chief, that is, the one who is the victor, Revelation 6-2 and other places. We are, Paul implies, we're really the prisoners that God has captured, and by our own public display in that triumphal procession, glory is being given to the one out front who is the commander-in-chief. It shows his power. He's bringing us back to the eternal city. It's God who's leading us always, Paul says, in triumphal procession. Paul says real Christianity then is, is marked by a spirit of victory. Now, I, I'm, I'm saying that this is not pie-in-the-sky religion, but it is realistic. It's the reality of a person who has given up fighting for his own life and has become a willing slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ then leads us, Paul says, in triumph, a victory that we could never possibly win for ourselves. And this same Paul would write to the Corinthian Christians, and he would say this, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? 1 Corinthians 15, 55. Notice the sarcasm. What Paul is saying is really a taunt. Paul is helping us to understand that when Christ leads us in triumph, when we are in that victory parade, as it were, What happens after this life is not up for grabs. It is not undecided. The issue for what is beyond the grave for the Christian is not the unknown. I'm here to tell you, it's not the twilight zone. It is a place where we will celebrate with God through eternity. And so Paul writes those that taunt, Oh, oh grave, oh death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? You've lost the stinger. Because of the power of Christ is what he's saying in the face of death. Well, you don't feel the punch of death anymore because Jesus Christ has conquered the unseen world of the dead. And he will, in the end, make all things new. And he will lead his people to eternal 
and to ultimate victory. No wonder real Christianity is characterized by a spirit of victory. But also, he says, we have a strong impact. Real Christians will always have a strong impact. He changes the metaphor, gives us the third mark of real Christianity in verse 14. Watch it carefully. And through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. I love that imagery. And you may be thinking, I don't even know what he means. Well, he's building here on the word fragrance. Look at verses 15 and 16 now. For we are to God the aroma. First he uses the word fragrance, then he uses the word aroma. The aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are the smell of death. To the other, the fragrance of life. And who is equal to such a task? Paul says that real Christianity makes a real impact on people. You know, people can spend a lot of money on colognes and fragrances these days that will allow them to be able to leave a room and still leave behind an unforgettable impression of the fact that they've been there. You know, some people wear so much fragrance they kind of leave a pool behind. You know what I'm talking about? But if it's, even if it's used correctly, the whole idea is to, is to make an impression on someone. You're not doing it just for yourself. You're doing it so that other people would say, ooh, that smells really good. What is that? Windsong fragrances years ago used to have a little jingle that went, Windsong stays on my mind. My addition to that was, and in my nose. But anyway, that's not important. But it really does. It, the whole point is to stay on your mind. Then Paul uses another word, but it's the same idea when he calls Christianity not a fragrance but an aroma. He just means that real Christianity has a discernible impact. When a real Christian, the real deal, has been in your company, when she, he or she is going to leave behind an impression, an influence that lingers. And John the Revelator says even when they die, their works do follow them. You see, you don't put influence in the grave when a person dies, not when the real Christian dies. That influence continues to live on and people continue to remember for years to come the impact that you had on their lives and on the lives of others. Paul is acknowledging that to some people, and, and we have to acknowledge the negative here, that to some people that aroma might be more like a stench. It could well be perceived by them as an unpleasant smell and here it is, folks, I'm going to let you in on something, and that's because not everybody likes Christians. They didn't in Paul's day, they don't in our day. The Romans, by the way, thought that anybody who was not a Roman smelled badly. You know, you could just smell them coming. It's the way the Romans, that's how prejudicial and biased they were. And Paul says that some people that we share our faith with will not accept the fact that Jesus, a man, could lie for three days in a tomb in the unseen world of the dead and then live again. And that he would walk out of that tomb on Sunday morning, not only with a pulse, but with a radiance and with a purpose and a plan to save lost humanity. Not everybody is going to believe that message. You and I know that because we've offered that message to those around us and it has been rejected by some. Nor do they believe that this Jesus, this Messiah walked on water or that he fed 5,000 people with a picnic lunch that was intended only for one. To some, it just could not happen. And so everything in the Bible, in their minds, is fabricated, and it's like reading a dime store novel. It's all just made up. You can't believe any of it. And that's why Paul then says that to people like that, with that mindset, to them, we are, Christians are an aroma, all right, but it's the smell of death. And then he turns it positive. But then he says we're like a beautiful aroma to other people. There are those who will accept Christ and who will be led to him and be willing to be led by him. 
Remember the person who had that conversation with you when they first broached spiritual matters? Or the person who took you to Bible study for the very first time or maybe invited you to VBS or the person who baptized you or maybe you're thinking back even years beyond that to the person who preached that sermon who made a great impact, a great impression on you for the Lord Jesus Christ. They are, Paul says, the aroma of life. They led you to life and away from spiritual death. So never, ever forget those people who have invested their lives in you. They have the aroma of life and be forever more grateful for their concern and their interest in you. I know I am. And if we had more time this morning, I could list the people who've had a great impact on my life. Their real love for you and me helped make us who we are. And that's because genuine Christianity always has a great, strong impact. So I have to ask this morning, as we turn that around for just a moment, what kind of impression are you making on people? Not just what kind of impression have people made on you, but what kind of impression are you making on, what kind of impression is this congregation making on the community in which we're located? What's the reputation that we have? Now, in our worship, we impress each other with how we sing, how we give, how we eat and drink, how we study, and with our sweet fellowship. But when we leave this worship service, what impression are we making on others. We can't read this passage without asking ourselves that question. If we're serious about doing spiritual inventory, what impression are you making in the dorm room? What impression are you making on that brand new freshman that just moved in across the hall or in the office? Or what impression are you making on your next door neighbors? What impression do husbands make on their wives and wives make on their husbands? That is the people who know you best. So keep serving and and keep loving and keep teaching is Paul's recommendation because you may become an aroma to that person to lead him or her closer to the Lord and closer to the abundant life. Number four is not motivated by love. I love the practicality of this one. Paul says something very interesting in verse 17. Take a look at it. He gives the fourth mark of real Christianity. Unlike so many, he says, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. If you want to know Real Christianity, as opposed to the counterfeits, that's got to be one of the factors. So the fourth mark is genuine concern, not ulterior motives. The word pedal there that Paul is using is it's an interesting word. It describes those who make illegitimate profit in the retail trade. And you may have been thinking, I knew that before I ever walked in here. Well, good for you. But that really is what Paul is talking about, people who have a monetary mercenary motivation for why they're doing what they're doing. It kind of, well, not just kind of, it is describing the huckster who will peddle the counterfeit and then sell it for the real thing, for profit, for money. They'll swear that what they just sold to you down on the corner of Madison and whatever in downtown Montgomery, they'll swear to you that that really is a Rolex watch or really is a Louis Vuitton handbag. It's the real thing, they assure you, as you fork over your money. Folks, I'm telling you, not only does this characteristic need to, to be mentioned, I don't know of any message about real Christianity that needs to go forth more than this one. Real Christianity is characterized, don't miss this church, by a lack of the profit motive. One of the things that the church could and should clearly say is, we don't want your money. That is not our primary interest. 
And why do we have to say it? Well, we have to say it because we live in a real world where every Tom, Dick, and Harry since the first century will take an idea from the Bible here, a principle there, and then go to the audience and milk them for money. We'll heal your body. We'll foretell your future. And you just come to our church as long as you make sure that you leave your love offering. And that's why we have to say it. Real Christianity is not something that is done for profit. It is not something that is done in self-interest. Please don't miss that. You know, one of the things that impresses people most about television programs that are placed on television by churches of Christ, the fact that we never ask for money. That makes an impression on a cynical and jaded world who expects everybody who has a message from God to also have the other hand, you know, Bible in one hand and the other hand out asking for an offering. And Paul is saying he's, he, that he's not in this because he's making money off the enterprise. To us, that's just anathema that Paul would even have to say that. I mean, imagine Paul writing this book. And folks, I am here to remind you that you could not touch anywhere on Paul's body without touching a scar. I mean, here's a man who had been stoned and beaten and shipwrecked multiple times, not in spite of, but because he was a New Testament Christian. And Paul over and over said, I would willingly pay this price and any above it in order to have the honor of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. Those things that I've suffered in this life, 2 Corinthians 4, toward the end of the chapter, are nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed to us in glory. You could just look at him and know that he was not a Christian for money or profit, but because he loved the Lord with all of his heart, soul, strength, and mind. And so should we. One of the finest things I've ever heard said about this good congregation was made to me by one of our university students just a few years ago. And he said, because he wasn't familiar with Churches of Christ until he came and enrolled in Faulkner, he said, I really appreciate the fact that, that you give your money, you allow others the opportunity to do so every Sunday, but you don't make a big deal out of it. And you don't make visitors feel uncomfortable. There are times in this church, every Sunday, for example, we are allowed to be able to contribute our, our means to the work of the kingdom of God, not just in this place, but around the world. That's the way it ought to work, and there's a biblical precedent for that. We allow others the opportunity to do that every, every Sunday. Sometimes we have special contributions for special causes, and this church always comes through in a generous sort of way, but we don't do it to make a profit. We will pledge to you that, we, that there is 0.00% that comes to administrative costs, if you know what I mean. Our offerings each week to God are very personal and very private. I don't know what you give, and you don't know what Mia and I give, and that is as it should be. The relationship of that gift to our lives, though, is very personal and very individual because it is an expression of our gratitude for what the God of mercy and kindness has done for our souls because that's what real Christians do. And then Paul gives the last mark of real Christianity, verse 17. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God Watch this, with sincerity, like men sent from God. So the last mark, Paul, uh, Paul says, is, is sincerity. It's not a watered-down witness, and I use that word in an accommodative sense. It's, 
It's not a comfortable witness. It's not even a convenient witness. It's not a witness that everybody would like. But Paul says it is a credible witness because it is done in sincerity. It is a witness that has been born out of genuine struggle. Just count my scars, Paul could say. It's the power to act, the power to serve, the power to worship, and the power to give from the heart just as we've done this morning. Why did we learn to help people as the people of God? Why are some of the most powerful and influential verses in the Bible about even if you give a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus, you will not lose your reward? We learned it because Jesus Christ himself came and he died for us, and we individually came to him, we knew him, we loved him, and we made the conscious decision to follow him as closely as we could for the rest of our lives. I'm telling you that that sincere claim is not debatable. Commitment always wins over a specious argument. Always has, always will. And, and Paul is saying, look at our spirit, the spiritual heartbeat within us that sustains us. It's transparent. If you want to investigate our motives, feel free to investigate them. Paul is even saying, if you want to know my sins, I'll be happy to confess them to you. Do you want to know what I did with that money that I raised in Corinth? I'll be happy to tell you gladly. It's all before God. Everything is out on the table. Nothing is hidden from the view of an all-seeing God. And I'd be happy to have full disclosure with you as well. And that's because Paul is able to say it's all done with sincerity. It was all honest. And what a wonderful way to live. You don't have to decide. Now, what was the story I gave that old boy? Because the next story I tell, I need to make sure it's consistent with the Latin. No, Paul says everything that we're doing is honest. We're doing it with sincerity. And then he ends with this verse with, like men sent from God. That's the term of a Roman commissioned officer. The Romans commissioned young men into the legion to lead them. In fact, they came to be called centurions, and that's some, somewhat like our captains. And Paul says that we've been commissioned not by Caesar of Rome. We've been commissioned by the God of heaven. We are commissioned. That is, that means that we're given an assignment. And I want to end with that this morning. If we're given an assignment in the military to guard our flank and then we let the enemy troops pass through, guess what? They'll attack us and we'll be defeated. And if someone comes to us with something about an elder or an anonymous letter about a brother or sister and we let the enemy pass through, then, then we have failed in our assignment. We have not maintained the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace. And that's because there's something very straightforward about this assignment that's been given to us by God. And here's how it sounds in Scripture. Here's the assignment. Please, please hang on to this. Go and tell what good things God has done and how merciful he has been. That's the assignment. That's the message he wants us to get out. It's very personal, but it also has eternal repercussions. At the end of time, though, some will say, well, I didn't know what to say. Or, God, you never sent anybody my way to say it to. Or we didn't have a training class that would allow me to be able to say it in a smooth and a polished sort of way. Or maybe in our moments of honesty we might say, but, God, I, I never could say it to anybody because I was scared and weak need, and I didn't want to broach the subject. Listen to the marching orders again. Go and tell what great things the Lord has done for you and how merciful he has been to you. That's a simple assignment. You are commissioned as an officer in the army of the living God. And folks, it is time we all reported for duty. That's the metaphor that Paul is using here. We're given an assignment. And part of that assignment is to watch each other's blind spots. 
You may not see it when the enemy is coming, but others might. And according to Galatians 6.1, it's our responsibility and our privilege to go to those and say, I love you, brother. Watch out what's coming on your flank. You see, that just means we have a responsibility not only to watch our own souls, but if you'll notice the banners on the wall, we have a responsibility to watch out for one another. And that's not just an obligation or a responsibility. It's a grand privilege to know that we are watching out for one another's souls. So I'm telling you that counterfeit Christianity is sold in the marketplace of religion at bargain basement prices. But real Christianity is never sold at clearance prices, and that's because it is very costly. As we have already gathered around this table, we were reminded that it cost God his son, and it cost Jesus his life. And it'll cost you and me our very selves. There is no alternative to it. There is no negotiating the price. There is a demand in real Christianity, but it is not primarily for your money. Folks, it is for you. It's for yourself. And that's the challenge of real, authentic Christianity. And that's why and that's why 54 years ago, almost to the day, I walked down the aisle in a small country church in the North Georgia mountains, two, three, four. And I gave... my dad my hand and God my heart and I became a New Testament Christian and let me tell you why it's because I'm turned off with the denominational institutional kind of religion that's always going after my things but does not have the least bit of interest in me but I am immensely attracted to the freshness of genuine Christianity because it's from God, and that's what we call you to this morning while we stand and while we sing.